Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have our good friend, Brandy Shufistinsky with us. Brandy, we know you well, and we talk to you all the time. We've been on live streams with you, and I'm very excited that you're actually on our podcast today. We're going to talk about some important issues with regards to critical social justice, as well as what's happening in the world right now. And I think that's a really important intersection. But before we do, this is a serious conversation. You might not have brought anything to the table. Did you bring a drink to the table? I didn't. Not today. I, I get that. David, did you? I'm just working on a Diet Coke. Sorry. Oh, you know, well, I, I've, I've got half a glass of wine, so that's where I'm at right now. But with that, with that said, I, we're in the middle of a war that someone, some, some people in my circles have called Cold War II. And it intersects with where we are in conversation internally with the United States. And, and in my personal opinion, Brandy, and I'm going to, I'll shush and let you give us yours. I'm really concerned with our ability as Americans to address external forces as we have continued to focus on uh, internal divisions that I think sometimes are, are manufactured. I leave it at that. What do you think? I think that um, looking at how we're able as Americans to actually counter ideology that's damaging and dangerous to um, lowercase l liberal democratic values um, it's important to actually do an assessment of where we are internally and looking at uh, what's happening in Ukraine with the invasion um, by Putin. It's interesting right now to see the horseshoe theory come uh, transform into reality right now when we're talking about our elected leaders, where you have uh, people on one side of the extreme who are Putin apologists and people on the other side of the extreme having their um, ideology challenged in a very real way by current events that doesn't allow them to take the side of a nation that has been uh, moving sometimes very rockily, but moving towards uh, democracy and again, lowercase um, liberalism. And what way do you think this war challenges progressive ideology and how, how so? It shows that it's not really that progressive now, is it? It's showing, it's showing that it's not very liberal. It's actually illiberal because it's not willing to stand up for people who are standing up and pushing back against authoritarianism. Um, what's considered liberal ideology or progressive ideology in today's terms, which uh, in, in, in current events within the United States, it, it, the, when it's applied to the a real world situation, like what's happening in Ukraine right now, it falls apart because it doesn't stand up to real world lived experiences. It doesn't stand up to the ideas of what do you sacrifice 
for freedom and for liberty. It falls apart, which is what it's doing now. You know, Brandy, yesterday, a news story came to my attention that really bothered me. And I try not to pay that much attention to news that aren't, that isn't fact-based, but of course, you know, we all, we live in this world of social media, but this really upset me. You might've heard of this too, where Joy Reid said that the only reason that Ukraine matters is because they're white and Christian. Do you have any thoughts on, I mean, to me, that was erasing history. That was erasing Vietnam. That was erasing Somalia. That was erasing uh, Bosnia. That was erasing a lot. And, and, and she played into this narrative of kind of this progressive ideology. Uh, and, and to be true, to be honest, of course, Ukraine is, is, it, it is primarily white. It is primarily uh, uh, Christian. I, I guess, I mean, I, I I don't know for sure, but it makes me sad that we, everything, everything has become so racialized that we have segmented, segmented out the way we talk, not only with the way we interact internally, but the way we interact externally. What thoughts? Um, Two two points about that statement. And I actually didn't hear it um, until you just said it. I I didn't. uh... I wasn't aware that Joy Reid said that, but um, two things. So first it shows how um, American centric racial dynamics don't play out outside of the context of the United States. And that's not to say that they play out very well here. That's uh, put that conversation aside, but they don't apply outside because if that were the case, you wouldn't have two Slavic countries um, at war. It doesn't translate outside of the context of, of the United States of America. And the other part is, I, my, my question to Joy Reid would be, what should the qualifications be for people who believe in freedom and liberty and um, liberal democratic values to stand up and say no to authoritarianism? Does that mean that we only stand up for people that look a certain way or come from a certain ethnic heritage? And if that's what she's, she's saying or implying, then what I said earlier makes even more sense that you know their theoretical ideology falls apart when it's applied to the real world. You can't say that you stand for human rights and for justice, but only if it's people who look like me or only if it's people who come from my spiritual background. Paul Hannah Jones tweeted out something that's been widely discussed. She said the reason why people are so animated by what's happening in Ukraine is because they're white people and she sees it as an expression of racism. What's your reaction to that? I'm sure that that could be true in certain circles. I I don't want to dismiss the, the, um, the facts that certain stories in media carry more weight than other stories, that certain people get more attention and other people get erased. I, I don't think that that's Um, false. I think what's false is making that the whole story. One of the reasons why the invasion of Ukraine is such a big story is because a sovereign nation was invaded. The wars from Rwanda in the 90s to Syria over the past decade plus a couple has been dominating the news cycle. The amount of refugees that have come out of Syria into Western Europe has been astronomical. To act like that didn't occur is a form of, again, very convenient erasure. 
on the side of people who want to um, center American centric racial ideology on everything. So, um, first of all, I should say in full disclosure, we work together. Um, and um, we've all, not only have you been a board member and now a professional team member of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, but we also have worked cl closely around what's going on in California with the ethnic studies model curriculum. Um, and it seems that that is constantly getting worse. Tell us where we are right now in California with the model curriculum. What's happening there? Um, so the disaster that so many people were worried um, was going to happen is actually playing out. Um, the original draft, the drafters of the original model curriculum that was actually shot down by political leadership in California because of how divisive and bigoted it was, is now rolling through the state um, pretty steadily in a different model, like under under a new under a new guise, but the same ideology. And different school districts are. Um, are contracting with this group that that is that consists of the drafters of the original uh, model curriculum. Not only that, they're advocating a couple of things that are actually um, impactful, not just for Californians, but for people across the nation and across the globe, because they're advocating that in order to even apply to any of the UC University of California system schools that you have to have taken one of their versions of an ethnic studies course, that that's they're advocating for that to be an actual application uh, requirement. So anyone wanting to go to Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Diego, et cetera, et cetera, would have to have taken one of their versions of ethnic studies, which is a critical ethnic studies course in order to meet that application requirement. You know, this, this, I know I'm, because my, my, my background is in international relations. So I know I'm, I'm bringing this pulling this back out to external relations. What concerns me is that I feel like America will only be torn apart if, if we pull together because of geopolitics and all these things that I can talk about forever, we, we, we're, we're really quite strong. Our biggest threat really is our internal division. And I feel like we might be watching that play out right now. Do, would you agree or am I off base a little bit? No, I mean, I um, one, I have background in international relations also. So I think this is- I know we also have a military here. background, which I yeah. found out recently. So yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that there's a difference in acknowledging and honoring difference um, and being divisive because of difference. And it seems right now that there's this push to do this, um, to, to, to make people small and fit in very little narrow identity boxes. And again, one um, example of, the, of how this is damaging is the ethnic studies curriculum that's rolling out in California and multiple other states across the country. Because the, the critical ethnic studies ideology that all white people are oppressors and can never be victims. Well, if you take that ideology and apply it to current events, it doesn't make sense. Again, it falls apart. If, if that ideology were true in the real world, then you wouldn't have Putin invading Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have people that are supposedly the same uh, or similar ethnic background or same skin color at war with one another. Anyone who knows even just a little bit about history knows that that's not the case. 
So it, it, it's, it's just another example about how that ideology really doesn't stand up to in, uh, even the smallest measure of scrutiny or rationality. And my hope is that um, even in this horrible tragedy that's playing out in, in Ukraine, that maybe people in, over here in the United States can you know, come to the realization that what we're doing internally is so harmful and damaging, and it doesn't apply to the real world. And it's not going to help anyone. It's not going to save anyone's life. It's not going to improve anyone's quality of life. And it's actually not going to lead to intellectual discourse or growth. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, took almost the exact opposite tact that you did, Jennifer, saying that uh, he believes that this is a sort of a moment for liberalism to shine. That mm. that uh, that we're 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 seeing um, groups come together in this country and elsewhere in Europe and the United States um, to on their common support for the liberal idea that a country shouldn't be attacked by another country. And it reminds us of what we have in common. And it reminds us how different tyranny is from freedom. And, and so I think there's an argument, maybe not that this is going to end the division in America, far from it, but but rather maybe it's a force moving in the opposite direction. Does that? I mean, I, I would say, though, I, I don't just I hope that David Brooks is right. But we just talked about Joy Reid and we just talked about Nicole Hannah Jones, who are using this moment to create further division. And so. I hope that people see past that. I hope that this conversation is part of that. But, you know, I, I'll tell you a, an antidote. So, you know, David, you know this. Uh, Brandy, I, I, I've got a book with a, a Black co-author this coming, uh, expect to be coming out this year. We'll see. Well, I mean, with all the tragedy going on, it might be pushed back. But um, we, we actually thought at the beginning of COVID, so we'd already kind of had most of our book together. And it was about the discussion of race in America. And then the, we thought, wow, with when COVID started, this was January to February. I was like, we both kind of wrote each other. We said, this might be a kumbaya moment because we've realized there's something out there that is like so much more important than what we look like here. And then we had the George Floyd incident and every, and, and it became even more important that we had this discussion. So Anyways, I only hope that David Brooks is right. But with the dialogue that we're already talking about in this podcast, I fear that I fear that he might not be right. And what my biggest fear is not that he's not right, but that him not being right, if I if what my fears come to be true, that it truly could spell the downfall of the American liberal experiment as we know it. And I know that's extreme, but that's where I'm at. But I, I think that the, I think, honestly, I think that you're both right. I think in different ways. So I think that what David Brooks is, say, is saying is that the institutions that were created to uphold the liberal democratic values, to, re to recognize liberty and sovereignty, those, those are still not perfectly, but actually standing strong against totalitarianism. That doesn't mean that there aren't forces that are working against that. And the part that's that's interesting is we always expected those forces to only come from one side of the political spectrum, when in fact, they're coming from everywhere. And the I think that there was a period of time that, you know, people who stand again for democracy and liberty 
got complacent. Democracy is a constant work in progress. And this is what, what um, I think we're experiencing right now is that if we're not willing to work for it, there are forces that are gonna be there to deconstruct it. So we, we, we've been sort of going back and forth between democracy in the world and what's going on and then in, in California and the potential that this sort of liberated ethnic studies program will expand, find itself in different parts of the states, um, you know, and that it could be even a more extreme variant of what we're already seeing in many public schools, many private schools as well. Um, how do you characterize what you're seeing, let's say in the average school district in Philadelphia or the DC area, you're familiar with the Montgomery County public schools and you've seen what they've come out with. How, how do you characterize that, that move toward diversity, but the language and the way that they're doing it in? One, I think it's actually not a move towards diversity. There's no, um, there isn't any inclusion of, of discourse. There's actually a very active suppression of it. And so we're moving away from actual learning, questioning, curiosity to indoctrination, repeat after me, to a more authoritarian style of learning under, it's like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, like under the guise of, oh, we're diverse, we're here because we're gonna recognize and celebrate everybody, but only everybody who thinks like me and speaks the way I speak and uses the language that I use because that's deemed acceptable because it's anti-racist or because it's, steeped in, in critical social justice or, or whatever the, the word of, or term of the day is. I think it's a, a very strong push away from what real diversity um, would look like. And that's a, that is the scarier part for me because without one of the strengths of the United States of America is our public schools, that anybody and everybody can get a certain basic level of education that can allow them to move on and become thoughtful, uh, members of society. When that starts to crumble, that's a degradation of society. And it doesn't start in the public schools. It actually starts in the schools of education where future teachers are being trained to then teach students. And that is getting missed. And that worries me. Oh yeah, that, that brings me back to, David will recall as well, we had a fabulous conversation with Lyle Asher who to me, that was mind blowing that a lot of this is being the origin of a lot of this is in education schools. And then yeah, at that you're, point, you're, you're a recent grad. Uh, you've gotten your doctorate from it. Yeah, you probably have some personal experience. Yeah, so what is, what is that experience? When uh, before I when I um, got accepted to my the, my doctoral program, I spoke with a, a, a woman who was a current um, student and um, one of the things she cautioned me about is there's a lot of group think. And I got to school in my first class, first couple of classes. And I was like, wow, out of everything she said, that really proved to be true. And a lot of group think where if there was a question or a different idea, not that it was so harshly put down, but it wasn't even considered, which I find interesting in the academy that questioning and curiosity wasn't considered or wasn't more um, encouraged more. It, it was actually disappointing. And so I'm, I'm very happy with the education I, I received. I was um, able to learn and, and be in, cl in classes with brilliant, brilliant people. 
it only led me to think how much more could we be had we been exposed to even more ideology instead of everything looking pretty uh, similar. So you're an African-American woman. Have you faced any consequences? The truth is, I don't even know the, I have no idea if this the answer and I talk to you every day. So um, have you faced any consequences from uh, various quarters in the black community about taking the position that you do? Have you, have, have you, have you faced any con- cancellation pressures yet at all? No. I actually haven't. And um, it, it also, it, it goes back to my experience. I don't know, I haven't done a survey to see how true it is, but um, there's a narrative out there that members of the black American community really uh, co-sign onto this far left ideology. And I found the opposite to be true. Um, we see that with the defund the police movement that's led um, mostly by highly educated white liberals. And saying that they're doing it uh, in, under the name of res- racial equity and, and um, against anti-Black racism, the significant majority of the Black American community don't support that movement. The significant majority of the Black American community have been pushing for reform, for better trained police, for more um, more just law enforcement. But that's just what the defund the police movement is one example. However, it's also interesting because we have representation, Black American representation in the halls of Congress that are going full speed ahead with this ideology that does not have the support of majority of Black Americans. And that's why I think we see a skew in what people think, oh, all Black people think this, and that it's just not really representative. It's not, it has, it's not true. Right. You know, I was just looking at this poll about the percentages of people who support race in college admissions, uh, race as a factor in college, college admissions. And um, it, it was, it's fast. I'm going to actually read it. Um, majorities across racial and ethnic groups say colleges should not consider race in admissions. Um, and only um, 38%, uh, 18% of Black Americans say that race should be a major factor, 20% say it should be a minor factor, and 62% say it shouldn't be a factor. That's not that different or um, than, than the, the public at large. Now, honestly, I'm someone who believes that, that I'm okay with race being a factor. Um, it's hard for me to imagine a certain college not having even some representation. And I think that that is an important learning objective. I mean, I'm, I feel tension over it, but mm-hmm. I still ultimately want, I would want, I would want to go to a college that had, that had some diversity. And, um, and I think it's good for the learning experience and the rest, but I, you know, but it, it, it's, it's, that's striking to me because it shows you how politically diverse the black community actually is and how it doesn't necessarily embody sort of this woke ideology that so many people attribute as its authentic voice. I would say probably majority, uh, the majority of the black community does not resonate to that ideology. And yet it's still, Treat it as if it's the representative voice of the Black American community. It is, it, I, and I think it makes an um, an interesting narrative and an, an interesting story to have a perpetual victim. 
And I think that the story of Black Americans uh, out of many, many other stories is one that can really highlight the American story, which is overcoming struggles. It's contributing to the fabric of society. And if you trace the different movements for liberation that Black Americans have fought and died for, it hasn't been for a handout, it's for, it's been for equality. And that's a common theme that we can see across generations. And for some reason, people on the extreme left uh, ignore that. It's just, it's a, it's very inconvenient to their story and their narrative because there's something that they're getting from making us constant victims. You know, I have to say to, to the extent that I'm proud to be an American, which again, that's something that we could talk about later, but it's, it's, it's that story and that's, it's that history um, that isn't directly mine, but I feel that I'm still a, a part of it. But <clears throat> the way we've been talking about these issues, it, it doesn't allow us to have that common ground. It's, we've got to separate. That said, I've got something, I'm going to go back to something that, that David said that really was interesting to me because you know, David and I like to talk a lot about systems. And then we talked about how uh, affirmative action and, and how David mentioned how the, you know, some, in some respects that's, that's important. But there was a study out recently and David, I wasn't planning on pulling the study up, so I don't have the name, but I'll put it in our podcast notes that Harvard, some of the big Ivies, including Harvard, and I, I believe Yale as well, as well, they're more diverse, but their money hasn't dropped. So where they're trying to bring in diversity, they're bringing in people of, of different races, but within the same income level. And I think the way that we talk about diversity is trying to give people a leg up, a bootstrap, whatever the words it is that you wanna say, it's, it's really addressing people of any color and it's a class issue, but where we've uh, where we've used affirmative action, where we've applied—that's the word I want to use—applied affirmative action. It's not. It, it it it's based solely on skin color, and we're doing everyone a disservice. Am I wrong? Am I did I miss something in that? I think um, I I'm not I I don't disagree with affirmative action. I disagree with a lot of the way it's applied or the way it's, it's, it's been defined. We can't escape the fact that historically and currently Black Americans don't have generations of us who have gone through a college and university level of education, whether that be from slavery or Jim Crow or just be, being disproportionately poor, which gets, to, gets a little bit to your point. Um, we don't have that legacy that, that white Americans have. Uh, so I think that it's important to actually acknowledge that that's a historical fact, trying to figure out, okay, if you have a group of people that for um, re no reason, you know, no, no um, reasons of their own have not been able to benefit from generations and legacy of college and university, is there any way to kind of correct that or to, to help that makes sense to do when it becomes a problem is when it becomes harmful. So if you have a situation where poor Americans also don't have that legacy, well, it would make sense to actually address that also and figure out ways to make college and university admissions more accessible to them. 
I, but I also want to note that getting into a college and university and graduating from it are two completely different things. So if you're talking about helping people get admitted, then you also have to think about how do you support them actually completing their degree. And that's, that's something that, you know, okay, well, here, we helped you get in, now everything's all up to you. And not that there has to be, a, you know, a million different social programs to address it, but those are two completely different things, admittance and, and completion. And I think that if we're looking at allowing more Americans to have access to things in a more equitable way, we need to address that as well. So you're a Jewish woman as well as an African-American woman. Um, and we talk a lot about what that means in your experience. I had um, a lunch with this young man named Noah Shifatinsky not too long ago. I think he might be related to you. And um, we, were, we were talking about the category of a Jew of color. And he was struggling with the concept, as I do, by the way, because on the one hand, we're, we're just Jews. Um, on the other hand, he did feel that um, he has been othered in the Jewish community, and so it, therefore it warranted the existence of the category. What is your feeling? How do you deal with this, this categorization of Jew of color, which has become a very popular way of describing not just Black Jews, but Asian Jews and Latino Jews as well? I don't describe, I don't self-define that, that way. I say I'm a black Jewish woman, that's what I am. I understand the concept of it in the United States. Um, out, again, outside of the United States, it's not necessarily applicable. The problem I have with it is that it flattens everyone's experience. So my experience as a Jew of color should be more in common with your experience as a Jew of color, but not some, it, it just, it, it doesn't um, allow space for individuality and individual experiences, even individual ex uh, communal experiences, it, it just kind of flattens that. So I don't, I don't identify that way. It doesn't make sense, especially in the context to me of Jews who um, have a global diaspora. How has your experience been as a black Jewish woman in the Jewish community? In America, similar to Noah's, that's my second, second born kid. Um, met with suspicion in certain places, met with how can you be Jewish? Um, that, that just type of um, idea that in or, again, in order to be this particular thing, you can only look one particular way, completely ignoring or just being ignorant of the diversity within the Jewish community. And I see that as being part of the Jewish diaspora experience in America because that doesn't come from Jewish tradition. It comes from diaspora experiences uh, as far as race and color. You know, Brandy, I, I know I come from a different background because I lived overseas when I was young for so long. But like, I'm always looking for what's the same. Like when you told me the other day about your military experience, I was like, yes, like we, and it was like, but it looks like in today's, America, we're always looking for our difference instead of for our commonality to our detriment. And now we look at Ukraine and as we continue to like fight among our differences, that's could be a problem. And do you see that too? Or is it just the bubble I'm living in? No, I see that there's, there seems to be a hyper focus on differences, but I, I also don't, I'm not, um, I don't sit in agreement with people that want to say we're all the same. I've always said, no, we're actually all different. And that's right. a great thing. That's a good thing. 
Um, it would be really boring if we were all the same. I don't, I, I think that it's fine to talk about differences in a way that isn't divisive. I think that there's a way to acknowledge um, acknowledge that we come from different experiences and different cultures and different, different backgrounds. And with that means that we will have fundamental disagreements about how, about politics, about family life, about education. And having those discussions and those debates is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. We shouldn't all agree with each other on everything and be the same. Yeah, I mean, I think disagreement is is incredibly healthy. I think that's what, again, I think that's what kind of makes, you know, the American experiment, if you will, work. So we're, we're trying to figure out what to do about this sort of encroachment of illiberal ideology on our in our everyday lives, in our schools. And we're, you know, we're trying to come up with strategies that that work, that that stand up for liberal, small l liberal values, that you know, the right for, of people to be able to disagree, to dissent, to argue with each other, and so forth. And I'm just wondering, what you know, you've been involved in this. You were a very early activist against the ethnic studies curriculum in California. Um, you've been working with us on the Jewish front. What do you think might work based on your experience in standing up for these, these values? Um, I think a couple of things, but they, they all relate to being unapologetic. So I think that looking at, are we more concerned with not getting offended or with getting to the truth or learning something? If we're always concerned that we're going to be offended or we're going to offend someone else, then we're self-censoring. And again, that kind of goes back to what happens under an authoritarian type government, where there's this level of censorship that's so oppressive that it doesn't allow for any dissension, any questioning, anyone to step outside of the line. And seeing that come from self-defined liberals is actually quite fascinating, kind of. It, it, it becomes to make a lot more sense when we also realize that the Democratic Socialists of America, for example, they actually uh, subscribe to neo-Marxism, which is an authoritarian ideology. So the, the fact that this type of ideology is that oppressive, looking, you know, tracing it back historically shouldn't be that shocking. It just doesn't feel right, because usually when we talk about people being progressive, we talk about them evolving, not not um, going backwards, which is actually what we're seeing. I think um, when we're looking at it again in schools, that's where my, my biggest concern is because as kids are growing and learning, they should be not just curious, but they should be encouraged to question and not to self-censor. I think that that becomes, becomes extremely dangerous when, when we're actually actively we're adults, not we, but are actively working to to have kids self-censor to the point that they don't question anything. Yeah, my um, my 11th grader was in English class the other day, and um, the teach they were reading a book on sort of the Black American experience, and it's part of sort of the entire curriculum at his school in particular being racialized. Interestingly enough, my stepson, who goes to a different public high school, also in 11th grade, is actually not going through yet the same kind of racialized curriculum as my son. So it hit a certain school earlier than it did another school. And that might have something to do with the nature of this. It's not, it's not uniform yet. But my, my son said the teacher asked, 
what is it? What is the black American experience in America today? And he points to my son and um, my son didn't really answer the question. And I asked him, what did you want to say? And he wanted to say, he said, I wanted to say that I think black people are as different from each other as white people are. That's what he wanted to say. And he, I said, well, what if you actually said that? And he said he would be, he'd be trounced on. I mean, it would just be a bloodbath, you know? And, and I, 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 that's what worries me is that, um, is that we're, we're stifling this kind of intellectual inquiry that actually makes people more empathetic toward each other that over time, when you're, when you're able to argue with each other, it's a way of listening and learning that can actually bring you closer to their views when it makes you want to listen and to their lived experience um, not always, not everyone. Some people don't argue in good faith, but when you kill good faith debate, you really prevent that possibility. And I it just, it's, and I'm just trying to think like, what do we, what, what do I, what do, what do I do? What, what do I do as a parent? Um, you know, another, I know I'm talking too much here and you're the guest, not me, but I want to, I want to tell you something else. Um, I, I listened into a synagogue discussion on what's going on with school boards. It was called the attack, I think, the attack on American school boards. And, you know, you had this, you had this school board member, a very eloquent woman, who talked about this sort of systematic attack on American school boards. Now, she cited some acts of violence and overkill on the part of certain parent groups in certain places that shouldn't happen. But she made it sound like every parent who challenged a school board member because of the nature of the curriculum was somehow engaging in that larger, sometimes violent campaign against school boards. And I'm wondering like in this ideological that, um, moment, how do moderate parents who want their kids to learn about the history of race and racism and want, want their kids to be engaged in conversations about race and racism, but don't want them to be indoctrinated, what do we do about it? What do we say to our schools, to our kids? You know, I'm looking for some insight. <laughs> I think having the conversation like you did with your with your kid is 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 very important. But the, again, getting back to, to the schools, this is also where it concerns me. Um, John McWhorter's uh, book, Woke Racism, he talks about the hypocrisy of woke ideology. Silence is violence and speech is violence. So then what do you do? And that that sounds like um, a very um, similar situation that your that your son was in. Does he say something or is it better to say something and maybe be wrong? Or is it better just to keep quiet and then seem like you're complicit in whatever the oppression or racism or whatever the conversation is about? And it leaves people with nowhere to go and, 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 and nothing to say. Um, the party line, which is right. what I think they're ultimately trying to get people to do. And, and that, that there is, is concerning because what parents are gonna end up doing is taking their kids out of public schools. We've already seen it. The yeah, California yeah. state is um, facing a multi-million dollar short budget shortfall because kids aren't going to the public schools anymore. And so what we're going to see is a push for more charters, more school choice. And we're going to see a huge fight from the teachers unions because the public schools are their bread and butter. And that's going to become a partisan fight. It already has. Yep. Instead of focusing on what the real issue is, which is our kids aren't necessarily learning in school, or maybe they're learning a little bit, maybe some schools they are and other ones they're being taught to what you said, toe the party line, just speak in 
in in uh, complete like it's it's Orwellian like just speak in the terms that are deemed acceptable say nothing that may offend which how do you ever ask a question if you're constantly concerned that you may offend somebody it's just to live in a perpetual state of ignorance and and, and beyond what you even said the, my biggest concern with people pulling their kids out public schools some of them are putting them in private schools but we know you know private schools also are struggling with some of the same issues but they're creating family pods and I agree I totally believe in public schools and my biggest fear is this will exacerbate not a race issue a class issue this is the haves and the haves nots and so we're just recreating the same when we talk about systems Mm -hmm. we're literally we as individuals are recreating the same system of haves and haves not have nots along class and racial lines. And, 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 and I think that we have to hold ourselves accountable. No, I agree. I agree with that. I think we're going to see it um, there. And unless elected officials, people in positions of power, where they're the one people that are the school boards or the state board of education, unless they actually take responsibility for what the public is telling them, what their constituents are telling them, we're going to stay in this cycle. We saw it in Virginia, where the voters said why they voted the way they did. And the many people in the Democratic Party leadership said, no, 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 that's not why. It's just because of white supremacy. Like, I mean, if you want to keep the blinders on because it makes you feel better and you, that, that way you can't get offended, okay, but things are still falling apart. It's not preventing what actually happened there in Virginia or what happened in with the school board in San Francisco, the, the three uh, school board members that got recalled. We have a good friend, um, Jennifer and I, named Sheena Mason. I don't know, you might've met at this point. She has this idea of that's called the theory of racelessness. She's a dynamo, brilliant, um, brilliant black woman. Well, she would say she wouldn't go by that anymore. Um, You just racialized her. I just racialized (laughs) the person who's arguing against racialization. That is really not good. Um, Because if anything, I believe people should be able to self-identify. Right. Um, But um, you know, she, she's, she's arguing that the very category of race, in a sense, reinforces racism and race racialized ideas that perpetuate the category and therefore perpetuate the disease of racism. Um, and she's arguing that it's a fiction. I think most people believe it, to a degree that race is a fiction. It's a social construct in the sense, but but that it really doesn't have any independent meaning. But but she's saying, but but in order to really make that a reality, we should stop talking about race and we should start moving away from um, race as a category. What is your view on, on that idea? Um, I, first off, I want to say I have not met her yet, but I'm a huge fan. I believe she's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I disagree with her. Um, I don't think that we should have to erase a part of um, how we define or that what connects us to some type of cultural or heritage tradition in order to get rid of or eliminate or combat racism. I understand where she's coming from because it seems like we've tried so many other things and yet here we are still battling racism. Um, But I think that that's actually uh, just the new form of tribalism, which has always existed as long as humans have existed. 
I don't, I think that the idea of eliminating racism is a bit fantastical. I don't think it will ever happen. I think that people group in whatever ways they group. And if it's not going to be um, based on race or color, it's going to be based on something else. Humans are tribal. We've always been. And I think that um, I am very comfortable and happy and proud to identify as a Black Jewish woman. Uh, I shouldn't have to not do that for people to treat me like a human. The same way I identify as a woman, I shouldn't have to not do that to eliminate sexism. No matter what we do, whether we eliminate race, whether we eliminate sex, whatever, there will always be big bigotry. I mean, choose your choose your next thing. Glasses, hair, hair uh, yeah. right? Um, so it's a laudable goal. I like it, but bigotry is, as you mentioned, being tribal. We will always face bigotry. I think, in some sense, until we. Are- I, want to, I want to do justice to her uh, for a second. Okay. She wouldn't say that we're going to get rid of bigotry. She just believes that that race itself is sort of uh, is a way of reinforcing a certain kind of bigotry that has historical significance, and that we should we should seek to end it. And that it's and and in some sense it's false. Like she, you know, she'll point out. She says, "Look, there. I mean." Uh, there's, you know, I, I talk like you would, like a white person talks. Like, and I don't have any distinct black accent, you know. Um, and um, and so why am I, you know? And 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 so her point is that this is a culture. What we're really talking about when we talk about race, it's a proxy for talking about culture, um, or and and that it's it's not a very good proxy for talking about culture because because there's tremendous diversity among people who would be, I'll use her terms, racialized as black. And um, and it's not correct to think of them as a unified cultural phenomenon because they're not and, and any more than white people. I mean, just you look around this country and you talk about white people and you start, kind of say, well, wait a second, is the white coal miner in West Virginia really um, in any way similar to a wealthy white person in a country club in New York? To me, there's there's a lot of there's as many uh, there's probably a lot of differences in that person. They're very culturally different, and and yet it becomes a proxy for treating it as if as if it's a single culture, as if it's a single force. So I'm wondering, like like, are there better ways of being tribal in a way? I I think that it becomes a problem when we um think that that being black or being white or being Latino is lesser than. When you bring supremacy in it, that's when it becomes an issue. Because I don't argue that I talk like a white person. To me, white people talk how I talk. Like, why is it flipped? That there's a, there's a hierarchical um, ideology that's behind it that actually fuels racism. And I think that even if we thought of different ways to be to be tribal, it's going to be the same thing. The shared heritage behind race, maybe it's maybe it's because we use race instead of ethnicity or we use them interchangeably in the United States. Um, if I'm saying black or somebody else is saying African-American, the, the meaning is that my heritage, my roots are coming from the motherland. It, it, regardless of, you know, I'm from born and raised in Southern California. I speak how people in Southern California speak. I now live in Philly. I don't understand most of their slang. It's not where I grew up. And so I get the regional differences. However, I'm still black and black people in Philly also still, we share the heritage of being descended from Africans. 
And it's so the words are maybe used interchangeably. I, I think the issue just comes with the supremacy or the hierarchy of what's better or what's worse. Right. So we have a Black professor friend who I'm not going to mention, who is just beside himself. He, um, a fellow professor, was suggesting that it was unfortunate that some young Black students in college um, don't want to be told that they can write in "quote unquote" the native dialect. They want, um, and that they, and that they should uh, uphold the standards of sort of scholarly English that you would use in, in school. And this uh, black professor was was just shocked that some of the other professors, not all of whom were black, by the way, were, were suggesting that this that these students who refused to uh, do that were were, um, were just conforming to white culture in a way that was damaging to them and was a sellout to their people and so forth. And he just thought that was wrong. It was setting them up for failure. What would you, what is your thought about that? Like about, um, you know, about student, black students who want, who don't want to be told that they should, they should be able to write in a, some kind of native authentic dialect. I agree with him. <laughs> I think that the idea that there's a difference between slang, most groups of people have a slang that they use with their friends, with their family. Um, the idea that black Americans can only communicate in slang and that English isn't our mother tongue is ridiculous. And it actually erases a very important part of our heritage where we weren't allowed to speak our native language when, when Africans were brought here, we were murdered, beaten and mutilated for it because we were forced to speak English. So the idea that English isn't our mother tongue is another form of, of, of erasure. And it's interesting, this is another, um, interesting uh, example of hypocrisy that comes out of the far left and out of woke so, uh, ideology. It's, it's, an, it's um, there's a, a phrase, it's, um, what is it? Left-wing supremacy is paternalistic and, and, and right-wing supremacy is, is supremacist. And, the, and both are damaging. And what we're seeing now in, in the academy, in, in um, politics, is we're seeing a lot of the left-wing paternalistic type of um, bigotry. Right. So I'm okay. So I, my mom is from Baghdad, Iraq. My dad is a European Jew, probably not directly from Germany or wherever, pro probably not from the sources of Western Enlightenment culture, right? So, and, and yet I see myself as an heir to Western Enlightenment just by being born in this country and being given that that culture though, that rigorous methodology of thinking that I've adopted as my own. And I've heard Glenn Lowry, and I think you've heard me say this, argue that he does not believe that, that somehow the Western cultural canon that he you know, studied is, is in a way biased against black people because, because he too is an heir to the Western tradition. The Western tradition is not alien to him because he's black. He grew up in the United States of America, several generations after slavery, and, um, and owns that tradition just as much as any other American who wasn't born in you know 18th century Europe. Um, so what do you think about that? What, what, how do you respond to that? I, I can see truth in it. I also think that the idea um, 
we've come to this idea to, uh, that where we associate everything Western with white and everything Eastern with um, a form of Orientalism. Um, I think that my, the way I grew up had a, a mix and I was able to enjoy that mix because I grew up under the um, freedoms afforded me living in a liberal demo uh, democratic nation in the, in the United States. That means that I was able to, to connect with what would be considered more Eastern, non-Western cultural traditions and heritage in with all the freedoms of living in a Western society. And so I think like the United States is an exception to, in, in multiple ways. And that's one of them. The freedoms that we, that, that we get living here also allow us to go down illiberal paths, which is something that we're seeing now. But I think it also allows us to be able to grow and flourish and keep connections to our cultural heritage that may not be considered Western. Yeah, I love that so much. And, and but on that note, I, I kind of want to go back to the whole larger issue of, of Ukraine. Uh, is are these liberal traditions? Are, are, is it in jeopardy? Is this just a side note? Or are we is it truly in jeopardy? And I asked this, Brandon, because we see what's going on. Obviously, it's frightening. Uh, I don't think we're at threat from Russia, obviously, you know, we've got plenty of borders, we're good, nuclear aside. But there is this introduction within our kids of promoting a communist ideology. I feel like that's been conflated with with what's unfair. So, I mean, we, we, we see uh, capitalism, it's got its problems. We can talk about that again, probably a, a topic for another podcast, but they, they conflate is it, it's either or it's like, well, capitalism has problems. So let's just go communism so for someone who studied China, not Russia, but China, that scares the crap out of me. And so my concern when we see Russian invading Ukraine is if there is a tipping point within America of youth who go, you know, we're just, we're done with the way we do America. Let's try something new. It's not really new. We've seen how it plays out before. They just haven't, you know, studied history. And we go down that path. Is, to you, is that even a concern of yours? Or it, am, I, am I just creating, you know, mountains out of molehills? I think it's a huge, for me, it's a huge concern to me. Um, one, I, don't, I see this as a bit of a wake-up call. So in full disclosure, my husband was a refugee born in, in, uh, from the former Soviet Union. He was born there, um, came to the United States with his, when he was a kid with, his, uh, with my brother-in-law and my in-laws, and they were uh, granted asylum. So the story of what communism looks like and authoritarian looks like is nothing that any of these people that are touting their neo-Marxist ideology could even begin to imagine or, or survive under. They're, they're able to speak about it and wave their, their little um, DSA flag because they live here. So it, it's that, again, that, that interesting hypocrisy that we see coming out of um, the far left. We see it with things like um, certain women uh, who, are, who are praising Hamas, where if they lived there, they couldn't go outside of their home without a male companion. So that, that uh, it, it's, it's, there's a huge um, issue of ignorance that we're dealing with. 
I think that it just also brings back the idea that democracy is something that we always have to work for. We're never going to be like, all right, we've got it. We could throw our hands up, kick our feet up. You know, we're, we're, we're finished. We made it. We've achieved democracy. I think it's constant work in progress. And the invasion of Ukraine is a prime example of that. It's concerning to me when we have people, elected leaders, who are demonizing the very institutions that are there to uphold small L, liberal democracy, whether it's NATO or the United Nations or any other group that formed to actually uphold uh, democratic order. And we see that coming out of both the left and the right. That, do that does concern me. All right, well, um, we're glad you're on our team. <laughs> I'm glad you're on my team. I'm glad to be on your team. And um, well, let's let's try to end on one positive. Like, Brandy, is there one thing positive? Because we all believe in in democracy and small li uh, liberalism. With everything that's gone going on in the world, do you see a bright light for America in our global future? I do. We see people coming together um, and helping strangers they've never met on the other side of the world, and actually standing up for what's right. And, and celebrating the achievements we've made and working to make it even better. And we see that every day. I think that, that, that there's positive in that. And, and we can talk about that and celebrate that and acknowledge that while uh, also realizing we've still got work to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just elevating that as the loudest voice. You know, we get a choice on what gets the, to be the loudest voice. Uh, often we feel like we don't, but we, we choose where we elevate. So I agree. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers. Cheers.